0: hello everyone this is volts for october 26th 2022 what to think about deep sea mining for clean energy minerals i'm your host david roberts as volts subscribers are aware the transition to clean energy is going to have the effect of radically raising demand for a key set of minerals used to make batteries solar panels and electric vehicles Currently, those minerals are mined in often environmentally and socially destructive ways using exploited or even child labor. In recent years, more attention has turned to an alternative place to find those minerals, the ocean floor. It turns out that huge caches of these minerals are simply lying on the seabed of the Pacific Ocean, waiting to be plucked up and processed. Of course, the idea of mining the seafloor raises all kinds of sensitive questions about feasibility, sustainability, and affordability. Recently, journalist Daniel Ackerman dug into all those questions for a story on the podcast How to Save a Planet. Shortly after it aired, he found out that Spotify was shutting the podcast down and laying off its staff. That's a bummer. It was a great podcast, and Spotify's decision has left several talented journalists, including Ackerman and Jobless. So I thought, in the name of highlighting both this subject and Ackerman's work, I would get in touch with him to talk it through. We discuss how deep-sea mining works, the size of the resource available, the environmental concerns it has raised, and cutting-edge technologies that promise to reduce its impact All right, then, Uh, without any further ado, Daniel Ackerman, welcome to Volts, and thank you for coming. Yeah, thanks for having me. Volts listeners uh, will be somewhat familiar with this from a podcast I did last year about clean energy minerals and everything. But just let's review quickly why it is we think that the market for these particular rare earth minerals is gonna explode Mm -hmm. soon. Like, give us some sort of a um, a little forecast, some statistics maybe.
1: Yeah, so the commodities that are most of interest right now at the bottom of the ocean are things like nickel and cobalt. Mm. They're, They're kind of the two big ones that are found in these formations called polymetallic nodules. And right now, when you look at the EV industry, the vast majority of electric car batteries contain nickel and cobalt. Right now, about 80% of electric cars sold around the globe contain nickel and cobalt in their battery cathodes. And there are going to be a ton of caveats today because <laughs> deep-sea mining is so complicated. Uh, and the first caveat is we're just talking about the market today, right? So there are some indications that battery chemistry is changing. Um, there's There are a lot of efforts, including funding by the U.S. government, to create more batteries that don't contain nickel and cobalt because those cause a ton of problems in their extraction. But in the next couple of years, uh, the demand for nickel and cobalt is going to continue to skyrocket as EVs take up more and more of the vehicle market.
0: Right, and so we've got to find those minerals somewhere. Currently, they are mined overseas Mm -hmm. in often uh, unpleasant circumstances, unpleasant environmentally and socially. Mm -hmm. There are children involved. There's environmental damage left behind. I think we've all read these stories. So there's a lot of attention now to where else, where we can find these minerals. And this is where the seafloor comes in. So let's just start by describing sort of what's down there. (laughs) Describe the resource for us. Mm -hmm. What are we down there looking for? And what does it look like? And where is it?
1: Yeah. So deep sea mining, there's been three different resources that have received some amount of commercial interest. Um, Quickly, the first two are hydrothermal vents, which are these bizarre kind of deep-sea vents near tectonic plate boundaries where the superheated water comes out and all these bizarre animals live. So that's hydrothermal vents. Another resource of interest uh, is basically underwater mountains called seamounts. Those often have crusts on their surface that are rich in cobalt. But the third resource is really the one that we're probably going to focus on. That's the polymetallic nodules. So these nodules form in the very deep ocean, talking like two to three miles deep. And they basically form uh, on what's called the abyssal plain, this flat expanse of sandy ocean bottom. And these nodules are just completely bizarre. (laughs) So (laughs) they're rocks, but they grow slowly over time, over the course of millions of years as you know, minerals precipitate out of the seawater and slowly kind of glom on to organic particles, often like a shark's tooth. So three million years ago, a shark lost a tooth and that tooth is slowly accumulating metals that are now very important to us, like cobalt, nickel, manganese, and copper. And in terms of the size of the resource, it really is pretty mind-blowing. So in one particular area of the Pacific Ocean called the Clarion-Clipperton Zone, this is kind of a a swath of ocean between Hawaii and Mexico. It's got a deep abyssal plain with lots of these polymetallic nodules. In the CCZ alone, there is more cobalt, nickel, and manganese in the form of these nodules than in all terrestrial reserves of those metals combined. So there is a significant amount of metal out there on the seafloor.
0: So this is a big prize, not a small thing. Mm-hmm. And and important to note that
1: these nodules have things like nickel and cobalt together in the same resource. So right. you don't have to open a mine in the DRC to get your cobalt and then another mine in, say, Indonesia to get your nickel. It is all in one place.
0: Right. And, uh, you know, I've seen pictures of the seafloor with these nodules on it. And just for sort of the listener's benefit, they just look like little round tennis balls, basically. They look like black tennis balls. Like somebody spilled a giant (laughs) bucket of black tennis balls on the surface. So it's not like, you know, people think mining, they think digging underground, but these are more or less laying there on the surface. Right.
1: They're sitting there on the surface in places where they're really concentrated. I, you know, I've heard scientists describe it as like a cobblestone street. It's just the surface is covered in
0: these nodules. Tell us what the current technology is that we would use to go down and get these? And where did the technology come from?
1: Mm -hmm. So just to preface this, there is no commercial scale mining happening yet. So um, all this technology has kind of been trialed in various phases, but it's not actually happening at commercial scale. Mm. But what it would look like is basically a giant underwater vacuum cleaner. (laughs) So basically companies are proposing to send these things that are maybe the size of semi-trucks, but way, way heavier, that would kind of go back and forth along the seabed and suck up the top, say, like 10 centimeters of sediment, which includes those nodules. And then from there, you'd have this huge pipe between your vacuum cleaner going all the way up to the surface of the ocean.
0: That's a two to three mile <laughs> yeah. long. That's, that's a lot of pipe.
1: Yeah, so it, it is it is a, a quite a feat of engineering. And the ideas for this technology have been around for quite a while. There was a metals shortage back in the 60s and 70s that kind of drove some interest in deep sea mining back then. And then there was also this very bizarre incident uh, during the Cold War. I love this story, by the way. Just tell, <laughs> tell, tell it real quick. Okay, this is a total aside, but I think it's worth it. So uh, during the Cold War, there was a Soviet sub that sunk to the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. And it happened to sink in an area where there are known to be polymetallic nodules. So the CIA basically said, hey, let's go out there and try to recover this Soviet sub because, you know, you would learn so much about the, you know, nuclear codes and and whatever, whatever intel they thought they could get from the Soviet sub. And so the CIA basically decided, okay, we're going to go out there, but we need a cover story. We can't just like send a naval ship to do this out in the open because if the Soviets knew what we were doing, they would change all their like code books and things like that. So the CIA gets in contact with none other than Howard Hughes, (laughs) who was this, uh, you know, eccentric billionaire. He had um, this aviation company. He was a Hollywood tycoon. He was kind of everywhere at the time. And The CIA said, all right, Howard Hughes, can you go out and tell the public that you are going to mine for polymetallic nodules and that you are sending out this huge ship uh, to this random spot in the Pacific Ocean for that purpose? And Hughes was like, yeah, sure, let's do it. (laughs) So so he sent this ship out there ostensibly saying that this is a deep sea mining operation. um, But what was actually happening was under this boat, the CIA was kind of lowering a giant claw to lift up that Soviet sub. They were ultimately not super successful. The sub kind of broke in half when they were lifting it, and they only ended up with a small piece of it. But publicly, um, it had this really big influence on the deep-sea mining industry. Everyone was like, wow, if Howard Hughes is into this, then maybe there's something here when it comes to deep sea mining.
0: And the CIA funded some actual research, yeah. right, into how to do this. Yeah,
1: or or other branches of the federal government at the time were funding research into deep sea mining because they needed this cover story to be convincing, <laughs> right? So they kind of ginned up this whole industry where there were suddenly academics who were doing research studies on you know the chemistry of these nodules and where they were located, and there were academic conferences to discuss deep sea mining. So suddenly there was a lot of money and interest in the deep sea mining industry as part of this cover story. And that didn't totally go away that some of that money and interest and information, you know, kind of kept the industry going through the, the 80s and 90s.
0: Hilarious that we developed a successful research program and successful technology as part of a cover story for a failed CIA <laughs> Uh, mission there's a parable there somewhere, some perfect metaphor there somewhere I'm not quite sure what it is. Yeah. So when I hear when people hear, I think when anyone hears about a giant vacuum cleaner sucking up the top 10 centimeters of a surface, it doesn't sound very ecologically sensitive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it doesn't right. you know it sounds like clear cutting, you know it sounds like you know it's not discriminate, it's not discriminating. And so if these were just rocks sitting in sand, it'd be one thing, but they're, you know, as humans have learned again and again, no matter how sort of inclement or far away or deep down or high up it is, there's life there. Right. So there's an ecosystem down there. So tell us a little bit about what we know about that ecosystem. It is um, largely mysterious to us, is it not?
1: Right. So there's been some research in the in the last, you know, 30 or 40 years in the in the Clary and Clipperton zone, but Overall, it is a pretty understudied ecosystem, you know, the deep ocean as a whole, just because it is hard to get to, (laughs) pressure is really high, temperatures are really low, it's dark, it's just not an easy place to do science. So pretty much every time scientists go down there in a submersible, they discover species that are totally new to science. So scientists (laughs) are still learning about this ecosystem. And these nodules, they're not just rocks, they are kind of the basis of this ecosystem down there. There are, you know, certain types of sea sponges that use the nodules as substrate and other animals that rely on those as well. So you mentioned clear cutting. I think that's a decent analogy. Um, It's also basically a form of strip mining, right? You're basically removing the entire surface layer, which is a habitat in its own right. And it's one that scientists are still working to understand.
0: I suppose we don't have a great understanding yet, but sort of what are the ecological dangers Mm -hmm. here?
1: Yeah, so the the obvious one is you're you're removing the surface of the sediment and all the animals that might be living there. Right. But beyond that, um, this operation would kick up a bunch of plumes of sediment um, that would kind of travel through the water column. And this could be a problem for animals that, you know, use light to communicate. There's a lot of bioluminescent, you know, squids and jellyfish and things down there. And if the water gets murky, they won't be able to use that communication system, potentially. This sediment plume could also interfere with uh, creatures that use basically filter feeding as their mechanism of, of getting food out of the seawater. And then there's the noise pollution. So this this has been a big one that's received a lot of study recently. We know that sound travels really far in the deep ocean, just because like the water is so dense, sound travels really far. Hmm. So the noise pollution, of course, could be a huge impact for... Whales, dolphins, animals that make all those really cool calls to communicate with each other.
0: Right, and we're talking about when we say noise, we mean the noise of the semi-truck-shaped thing on the surface, or
1: uh, well, there's there's the semi-truck-shaped thing on the on the <laughs> seabed. There's also nodules that are going to be rattling up, you know, two miles of pipe to the surface. Right, and then the ship that is waiting on the sea surface to receive those nodules that's actually going to be using kind of like a very fine tuned positioning system that generates a lot of sound up at the surface. So mm. there's sound basically emanating from all parts of this operation potentially.
0: So there's none of this happening yet. There's a lot of interest gathering and then there's also a lot of opposition gathering. Mm-hmm. We're going to we're going to get to all that in a minute. But first let's just talk about who is in charge here <laughs> who, who regulates this who like if i wanted to if i'm you know a howard hughes-esque figure and i want to buy a giant ship and go mine mm-hmm. some nodules who do i ask and who gives me permission and and if i screw it up who uh punishes me is there any such thing sort of mm-hmm. the, what's the regulatory environment here
1: yeah so that depends exactly where you are so for countries with coastlines They basically have jurisdiction over seabed resources about 200 miles from their shores. So that's called the exclusive economic zone of an individual country.
0: So there are some of these nodule fields located close enough to countries that they're within territorial waters?
1: Right, and some countries like the Cook Islands in the Pacific have actually given out exploration licenses to mining companies to explore in their exclusive economic zones. Mm. But the vast majority of the ocean does not fall into an exclusive economic zone. It's international waters or the high seas or, in UN speak, the area beyond national jurisdiction. (laughs) And in this area, the International Seabed Authority uh, is the regulator of deep sea mining.
0: That's a UN agency.
1: Yeah, so uh, the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea was a, a, a treaty commonly known as the Constitution for the Ocean, initially signed in the 1980s, updated in the 90s. And it was this uh, UN Convention on the Law of the Sea that set up the International Seabed Authority as the regulator of this industry. Mm-hmm. So the International Seabed Authority is based in Kingston, Jamaica. And periodically, all the member states of the ISA, which notably does not include the US, but it does include most really? countries. Yeah.
0: Is there a reason? Did we purposefully not join?
1: Uh, yes. Yeah, so uh, it... it Like everything seems to do, it goes back to Ronald Reagan. Uh, In the 80s, when the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea was was being written up um, at the United Nations, Reagan and his administration basically decided that they didn't really like the terms of this. They didn't want to kind of submit to international regulation when it comes to the deep sea, which previously was a place where the US felt like they could just go out and do their own thing. Um, So Reagan was was not a fan of that treaty, so the U.S. still has never entered the treaty and thus is not a part of the International Seabed Authority, or at least they can't really vote on important things there.
0: So let me just pause here and ask a question because I often wonder about related things. So say the International Seabed Authority comes up with some rules, you know, is handing out permits or whatever, Mm -hmm. is the U.S. just not subject to those because it's not part of the treaty can it just go out and do whatever it wants if it tries to go out and do whatever it wants does the international seabed authority have any recourse against it or uh, like
1: i mean they don't they don't have like an international police force or anything so i don't <laughs> think there's much recourse there and in fact the united states does actually assert an exploration lease area for deep sea mining in the Clarion-Clipperton zone in international waters that the federal government says pre-exists the ISA and all of that. So the U.S. is kind of maintaining, hey, we actually do have a claim Hmm. in this area. Not that anything's happening there, but there is a little bit of tension that has been going on for decades over the fact that most countries on earth have kind of agreed to participate in this international government structure and the U.S. is still kind of doing its own thing.
0: There's another parable. So the International Seabed Authority, more or less, controls this. And as I understand it, they are in the process of mm-hmm. coming up with rules. How's that going to work?
1: Yeah, so they have come up with rules for exploration. Basically, they've given out 31 permits or 31 licenses to various companies and countries to go out into different parts of the ocean and explore for nodules and other resources.
0: So this has the resource has been if not exploited, it has been explored fairly well. Like we understand it fairly well.
1: Yeah, in certain parts of the ocean, that that is the case, yeah. But there has not yet been a turn from exploration to exploitation that could be happening soon, though. So so like you mentioned, the countries of the ISA have been meeting in Kingston, Jamaica periodically to come up with this exploitation rulebook. Mm-hmm. They call it basically the mining code. This would be the set of environmental regulations that a mining company would have to follow. It also includes how royalty payments would work. Something you might not have known before today, David, is that you actually are the proud owner of polymetallic nodules on the seafloor. The the UN defines these seabed resources as the common heritage of humankind.
0: Oh, interesting. So so you would pay royalties to all of the humans of the earth how does that how does that work yeah so I mean that
1: that's one of the many sticking points in negotiations at the ISA right now as part of this mining code as this rule book they have to come up with how royalty payments would work
0: yeah who do you pay like I don't even I don't, you
1: you would so you if you had your own mining operation you would pay the international seabed Authority then they would have to redistribute that huh. and the question is how right like they mm. could just Dole it out to all their member countries based on population. But then there are these questions of equity, like maybe less developed countries to get more, maybe countries whose economies are going to be impacted by deep sea mining should get more. For example, right. if you're Indonesia and you have a lot of nickel mines and suddenly the market for nickel is flooded with deep sea metals, maybe you're entitled to more. So these are all debates that are happening.
0: Or maybe some of it should be spent on remediation and maintenance. Of healthy underwater ecosystems.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So these are all ongoing conversations at the International Seabed Authority. This is a slow process. They've been coming up with these rules <laughs> for more than a decade. I, I was at the last conference in um, this summer, in July and August. And, you know, watching the delegates go through this draft rule book, it is like they go through every single word, they have a debate on every single word. And so it's just a slow process. I think it'll take a few more years.
0: Ah, the UN. Gotta love it. Yeah. Is it the case that no one can go down and exploit this before there are rules? Or is this kind of thing where they're like, uh, they've fallen behind? Or is it like, uh, do they have some authority to keep people out until the rules are in place?
1: Um, so that is up in the air right now. <laughs> so you, you might, you might've heard of the so-called two year trigger rule. So there's this kind of hidden clause in the UN convention on the law of the sea that basically says if a country wants to go out into international waters and start a mining operation, but the ISA rules are not yet in place, that country would have to give basically two years notice to the ISA. And then the ISA would either have to finish the rulebook in those two years or just kind of maybe provisionally grant a license to mine. Interesting, And all of that was very theoretical until in the middle of last year in 2021, Nauru, the Pacific Island Nation, sent a letter to the ISA saying, hey, we would like to apply for a permit to start mining in two years. So that would be the middle of 2023. And Nauru is, is doing that in partnership with a Canadian mining firm called The Metals Company.
0: And... Is there, I mean, who knows, but is there a reason to believe that the ISA could actually finish up its rules and have them in place within two years? Or do you think it's probably going to be some ad hoc thing?
1: Yeah, I mean, at this point, it's less than two years. It's till July of 2023. Mm. I don't see, I just don't see that happening given the pace that the work is going and how much work yet needs to be done on this rulebook. I don't think it'll be completed. At the same time, I don't know that Nauru and the metals company come the end of this two-year deadline are actually going to apply to mine. Um, You know, there's still kind of trials of the technology that need to be done, environmental baseline data that needs to be collected. There's been a lot of questions about what happens when this two-year rule expires Um, next year. I wouldn't be surprised if nothing really happens at all. (laughs) (laughs) It it depends on whether Nauru actually submits um, an application to mine, and I'm not sure they're quite ready to do that.
0: So you said there's no sort of commercial mining happening at any scale. Is anyone just down there testing, mm-hmm. doing a little bit of this, seeing what happens? Like, yeah. do we have good information on, you, you know, we can guess, but obviously we need to go down and do experiments. Like, do we know what happens when nodules are mined this way?
1: Yeah, so over the years there have been some very small scale experiments Um Talking just like scientists who have dragged kind of a plow over a couple hundred yards of the seafloor and have revisited that kind of furrow 26 years later and found that not much has changed. Like the ecosystem hasn't recovered. Things happen really slowly in the deep sea. Yeah, I bet. In terms of actually testing the mining equipment, that is beginning to happen. So I mentioned the metals company, which is working with Nauru. The metals company right now, as we speak, is actually testing a pilot of their deep sea collection system Mm. in the Clarion-Clipperton zone. They just recently last week announced um, they have successfully dragged up um, a few tons of nodules from the seafloor with their machinery. So those tests are beginning to happen. And I think one kind of space that I'm really interested in watching is whether there are successful tests of alternative technologies. So we've been talking about this huge what I would describe as destructive vacuum. Right, right. Yeah. yeah,
0: this was my next question. Like the traditional companies, the companies that are going after this right now, including the Metals Company, are using the traditional vacuum cleaner. <laughs> I'm just going to call it the vacuum cleaner. Presumably, there's you know a lot of thought and research going into improving this. I mean, this is literally like 1.0 uh, mm-hmm. stuff. So, what technologies are on the horizon, and how close are they to being real?
1: Yeah. So there are a few companies that are piloting. Basically, technologies where submersibles would go down there and hover above the seafloor and pluck up those nodules. So you wouldn't be disturbing the sediment. It would be much quieter. A lot of these environmental impacts would potentially be mitigated. So the company that is kind of farthest along on this is called Impossible Metals. They're a startup. And at this point, they don't have a a pilot vehicle that they are ready to test. They say they'll have that next year. Hmm. But basically, the design of their vehicles, they would send this kind of fleet of underwater robots that have like a few dozen mechanical hands on the bottom of them. It would
0: hover above the sea floor. Unmanned, we're talking a... Right. right.
1: Yeah, there would be, uh, yeah, no no people going down there. Um, These would be untethered vehicles. And it would use remote sensing and artificial intelligence to basically look at the sea floor and if it sees a nodule with, like, an animal on it, there's an octopus or there's, like, a sea sponge or something, <laughs> it can actually just leave that nodule there and only pluck up the ones with nothing growing on them. So this is potentially a game-changing technology, but, again, it doesn't quite exist yet.
0: I mean, you could theoretically program it to, like, pluck every other nodule or mm-hmm. every third nodule or, or something. You other, so you're not, like, doing the clear-cutting sort of version of this.
1: Right, right. So they call this, like, selective harvesting that they can leave much of the ecosystem intact. But of course, there's questions over whether this can just work from a technical standpoint. And then there's questions economically, like the rate of nodule collection with these things, I think would be much lower than with a giant vacuum cleaner. So,
0: I mean, do we know that? Well, I guess it hasn't, we haven't done it yet, so we don't know it. But do they have estimates, like the relative speed of these two technologies?
1: I don't have the numbers off the top of my head. Obviously, the company thinks they can make it work, but um, it is untested and um, it is potentially game changing. But still, that's potential, not quite yet reality.
0: Right. And this does seem like one of those things where buyers of minerals could exert some power, you know, Mm -hmm. put some sort of standards on the metals they're willing to buy and and move and boost alternative technologies that way.
1: Right. And we, we've already seen a number of buyers of these metals, notably car companies like Rivian and BMW and Volkswagen, Volvo, a few others, have basically announced like, we are not going to use metals from the bottom of the ocean. And they've they've done that. Really? Yeah. So they, they've made that announcement. Full stop. Full stop. Of course, you know, they don't say we will never use them. They just says <laughs> we're not going to. And they say it's because of these potentially harmful and unknown effects of deep sea mining. But if a company like Impossible Metals comes along and shows that they can successfully recover these metals with much lower environmental impact, maybe those buyers will say, OK, well, we can buy from this company.
0: Mm. Interesting. And so you say next year, well, they say the company claims next year they'll have an actual submersible to send down there? They
1: say they'll have a pilot submersible that they can test in shallow water. So that's still a few years away from commercial deployment. So when when we're talking about some of these mining companies that are closest to actually setting up a commercial mining operation, so that's like the metals company, Mm -hmm. another one is called GSR, that's a Belgian company, Those companies are all proposing to use this kind of vacuum cleaner, clear-cutting type technology.
0: It just doesn't seem like if you have a giant vacuum cleaner, you have any capacity to improve those results or to be selective or anything. You can't really, like, (laughs) giant vacuum cleaners are sort of by nature undiscriminating. Right.
1: Mm -hmm. There are some open questions of ways that these vacuum cleaners could kind of mitigate the, the damage. For example, You know, we talked about that pipe that brings the nodules and some sediment up to a ship waiting on the sea surface. Mm -hmm. That ship is then going to collect the nodules and then discharge kind of the waste, seawater and sediment back into the ocean.
0: Which is itself a plume also, right? It's just going to be like dirt, basically.
1: Yeah. And so there's questions about, well, maybe we can create regulations to say that plume needs to be discharged in its own very deep pipe down back near the bottom where it came from. Uh, so there, there are some ways to potentially mitigate it. But overall, yes, the vacuum cleaner is a vacuum cleaner. doesn't. <laughs> it just sucks everything up.
0: My impression is that there is a growing resistance to this that like uh, a lot of people are waking up and that more and more people are sort of coming along and saying hey no no don't hold hold on a second so tell us a little bit about sort of like who who's pushing back and how and is there any prospect of that resistance you know slowing things down yeah
1: (laughs) so pushback from the scientific community has been happening for a number of years A, a number of marine biologists in particular have kind of led this effort to call for a moratorium saying we don't know enough about the deep ocean and how it would be impacted by deep sea mining. So until we gather more information, we should not go forward with any deep sea mining. Mm -hmm. So those calls for a moratorium from the science community have been happening for a number of years. More recently, in just the last couple of years, we've seen, like I mentioned, these car makers actually kind of joining this call for a moratorium. And then just this year, um, at the ISA meeting in Kingston, Jamaica, for the first time, national governments kind of stood up at the ISA, you know, as they're in the middle of this debate over making this, this rule book for mining, they said, all right, well, should we actually back up here and decide whether we want to move forward with this or not? You mm. know, they've been debating the minutiae of these rules for so long. Yeah. And now for the first time, um, this summer, the, the Federated States of Micronesia, their delegate at the ISA stood up and called for a moratorium basically in front of all of the countries that were there debating the rulebook. And, and a, a number of other countries have since joined that
0: call. Are these countries that have nodules around them that are sort of like targets, or are they just interested countries? Is it What can we say about the countries that are...
1: Yeah, a number of the countries that have called for a moratorium are uh, Pacific Island countries. So I mentioned right. um, the Federated States of Micronesia. Um, A couple other Pacific Island nations as well. Costa Rica and Chile have also joined this call. So some of these countries are near the areas that would potentially be impacted by deep sea mining. But a lot of them just kind of claim on the basis of, as a group, we're responsible for international waters for the deep sea. And to be good stewards of that area, we should really kind of take our time with this. And maybe wait ten or fifteen years until we learn more about this ecosystem.
0: Yeah, of course. The you know looming behind that is the fact that these coming ten or fifteen years are precisely when we're going to need shitloads of these minerals. Mm-hmm. Do you think the resistance is big enough and strong enough yet that it's actually going to materially slow things down, or or? I think to, what's the balance of forces.
1: I think it could. So at at this point. No one has actually submitted an application to the ISA to mine, but like I mentioned, that could be coming in the next couple of years. Mm. But all of the ISA member countries would basically have to collectively have to vote to approve that application and that mining operation. Is
0: this a UN thing where everyone has where it has to be unanimous?
1: It's a slightly complicated uh, procedure where a much smaller kind of expert panel within the ISA called the Legal and Technical Commission, reviews the application behind closed doors, because the application presumably involves like trade secrets surrounding the you know, the data that, that companies have about their lease areas. So the Legal and Technical Commission reviews the application and basically recommends, yes, we should approve, or no, we should deny, and then the entire body of the ISA, all the member states will then vote based on that recommendation. But of course the member states don't have the data to look at. It's right. the, all they have is this recommendation from the Legal and Technical Commission. So they're kind of at an information deficit. But at the same time, if there are a number of countries that are just philosophically opposed to the idea of starting a deep sea mining operation in the next few years, they might just vote no. So that I think that is something that could be on the horizon.
0: Interesting, interesting, and let's talk a little bit about the the countries and kind of their cross cutting incentives. You said there are uh, Pacific Island countries that are coming out against this, um, you know, in advance, mm-hmm. but there's also, as you say, the Cook Islands that is going forward with this. So, if you're a Pacific Island nation that's got nodules on the seafloor around you, what are the kind of cross cutting incentives? What is the calculation that's going on there and why are they falling on different sides of this line?
1: Let's take the Cook Islands as an example here because they are kind of down the middle when it comes to this. Mm. They haven't really staked out an extremely strong position either way, but they've been slowly moving forward within their um, exclusive economic zone. They've offered these exploration licenses. I recently interviewed Alex Herman, who is the Seabed Minerals Commissioner of the Cook Islands. And she basically said with these exploration permits they've given out, it's just a way to get more marine science. Like they're going to just learn more about the ecosystem Mm -hmm. that is in the deep ocean um, around the Cook Islands. They're also going to get some revenue because these exploration permits come with payments. So there's kind of this tension where, yes, they get some benefits from this exploration, but the mining companies that are partnering um, on this exploration obviously are only doing it because they hope that one day they will be able to actually set up a mine. So, you know, the incentives are really complex for some of these Pacific Island countries. It is an opportunity for a lot of revenue, um, which is important in the case of the Cook Islands. Their economy is heavily reliant on tourism. During the pandemic, they basically found out that is not a very resilient <laughs> <laughs> right. resilient uh, industry. So they see deep sea mining as a way to, you know, diversify their economy and, um, But at the same time, you know, Alex Herman expressed some wariness that, you know, ultimately we don't really know what the effects of deep sea mining are going to be until and if it actually starts. So they don't, they, you know, obviously don't want to kind of ruin the fisheries or the water quality.
0: Um, Right, right. These are countries that treasure the ocean and mm -hmm. depend on it completely. You know, in a sense, it's not, I mean, it's somewhat unique physically, but it's not that different than the sort of resource calculations of a lot of poor countries terrestrially, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's the same thing with like a, a surface lithium mine. The revenue is there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you can make a lot of money off it. It's going to damage a lot of your ecosystems. You know, it's, just, it's a very similar calculation.
1: Right, right. But the, you know, proponents of deep sea mining would say the difference is that when you go hundreds or thousands of miles away from any you know, community where people are living in the middle of the ocean to get these nodules, you're not touching anyone's water supply. You're not dislocating a community in order to dig a hole in the place that used to be their home. Um, You're not cutting down any trees uh, and you're not creating, you know, these huge tailings dams, so.
0: You're touching on this, but let's sort of fill it out a little bit. Sort of like the case against this, I think is, is pretty clear Mm -hmm. The worries about ecosystems that we don't fully understand. Um, and doing permanent damage before we understand what we're doing, which is kind of our thing. <laughs> and then uh, so what's the pro case? What's the case for going ahead with this?
1: So the case for going ahead with this is that we know a lot of electric vehicles are going to be sold that contain nickel and cobalt in the next you know decade or so. and digging up those minerals on land is terrible. (laughs) Like (laughs) you mentioned child labor. um, We
0: understand that quite well. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And so when we talk about the Clarion-Clipperton zone in the deep ocean, that is relatively remote from where anyone lives. You know, it doesn't touch anyone's water supply. There are potentially impacts to fisheries like like tuna and some other fish that kind of utilize deep parts of the ocean. But overall, you're not really going to be directly damaging people's homes and communities in the same way that terrestrial mining often does. Right. So basically to, to sum this up, it's like proponents will say, we're going to need to continue extracting these metals at least for some time. And deep sea mining is a way to do that with much less social harm than mining on land.
0: Right. So it's a compared to what kind of argument?
1: Right. And, you know, one thing I'll throw out there is that you can make this comparison all day, but when it comes to it, you know, if the ISA starts approving deep-sea mining projects, there's nothing to say that mining on land is suddenly going to close down, right? It's, this could just be an additional impact.
0: It almost certainly will be, right? I mean, the, the, the rate of growth of demand that is projected for these minerals is just wild. Mm-hmm. So, it, I mean, especially at the beginning, it almost is certain to be additional -hmm. Right. Not substituting for any land based. I guess you could say it's substituting for additional land based Mm -hmm. (laughs) mines, not yet open mines. So then let's talk about that demand projection. So, you know, you mentioned in passing a couple of reasons. And I think, you know, this has been covered on Volts quite a bit. Mm -hmm. A couple of reasons to think that maybe demand for these minerals will not be as stratospheric <laughs> as a lot of current projections say. What's the case there?
1: The key thing to keep in mind is that when we're talking about polymetallic nodules, we're not really talking about lithium. <laughs> in most battery chemistries out there, lithium is really important. Mm-hmm. That's not necessarily the case with cobalt and nickel, which is what's found in these you know, seafloor nodules. Mm-hmm. Right now, the vast majority of battery cathodes in EVs contain nickel and cobalt, but there's a huge effort to engineer those materials out of the cathode. So even today, uh, Tesla, for example, a huge proportion of its sales include batteries um, with this so-called lithium iron phosphate or LFP chemistry. Um, most of those sales are actually in China where consumers are less obsessed with range than they are in the United States. Yeah. Um, so the the benefit of using cobalt and nickel is that it gives you a really high energy density. So you know, we still can't make a battery with more range in an EV um, than we have with with nickel and cobalt. So I think a few things could happen. First, there will be improvements in alternative battery chemistries where suddenly you do get really good range um, without nickel and cobalt. I don't know how quickly that will happen.
0: Or, Or charging will come along and Americans will unclench their sphincters about this largely <laughs> illusory problem of range. Let me just get that. Exactly.
1: Across. Okay. That's the other thing. Hopefully <laughs> hopefully, uh, range anxiety can be alleviated and <laughs> yeah. American consumers will be less obsessively focused on range of their EV. Because basically we have, uh, you know, we don't have to rely on going to the gas station when we can just charge our vehicles um, at home or at work or wherever.
0: Right. So that's substitution. Of different materials, maybe finding more benign and less damaging materials to use, mm-hmm. like iron, for instance, you can get anywhere. And there's you know, there's a lot of work on a lot of different battery chemistries, as Volt listeners will also be familiar with. It did a big thing on lithium ion and its various alternatives last year that people should go check out. But there's also uh, recycling, mm-hmm. right, which is also somewhat nascent, but people have very... High expectations about this.
1: Yeah. And in fact, a lot of the companies that are pushing into the deep sea mining industry, like the metals company, they say that in the long term, they're actually going to be recycling companies. Yeah. It's just that in the short term, in the next few years, there is going to be so much demand for battery materials that there's just not enough in the system right now to recycle. Right. So I think with the advances we're seeing in recycling, you know, a circular economy is possible, but definitely not in the next decade.
0: Right, and this is like, this. I don't wanna insert my own rant here, I'm supposed to be listening to you, but this is <laughs> a, a, something I always wanna emphasize when we talk about minerals. It is true that you are gonna need a bunch more minerals in coming years to build this wave of new batteries and EVs. But this is not like fossil fuel technology, where you need a constant flow of materials, right? I mean, this is the whole point about fossil fuel, technology is even once you've used the materials to build it you still need constant input of fuel so you're doing constant digging constant mining constant exploration of new materials this is different once you build uh the battery you're done and then the minerals in that battery are in circulation and can theoretically be recycled and used to make new batteries forever and ever amen so you can envision a point when the sort of um saturation point has been reached and like there's enough batteries and enough EVs being recycled to satisfy the need for new batteries and new EVs, and you're done with mining. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, obviously, that's like the question is, how do we get to that point? Yes, exactly. Exactly. Getting from here to there is difficult, but this is not a forever type of thing, right? It's not like you're forever going to need more and more and more and more minerals. There is. A saturation point mm-hmm. that you can't envision reaching so which is just you constantly hear people saying oh we're trading one environmental destruction for another and all this kind of like uh, uh actually evs are bad type of uh, gimmicky arguments online and i just i just have to make this point uh over and over again yeah
1: i mean i i don't know that those arguments are are gimmicky because i mean they they do kind of set up this conversation of okay well if we say we do need these minerals, how do we get them in the least harmful way? Sure. So totally. it at least sets up that conversation.
0: Totally. Yeah, yeah. And this is another thing also is that mining <laughs> and drilling, you know, they can be done somewhat better or worse. But there's a sort of base level of of damage you're doing. But there's a lot of uh, wiggle room still mm-hmm to improve these minerals because right now like the current current market for these minerals is relatively modest it's the near future everybody's freaking out about so there just hasn't been a lot of attention paid yet to the mining and trying to impose rules on it and trying to improve its impact
1: right right and i think in the future in in addition to kind of technological improvements in mining there's going to be a lot more public pressure on manufacturers on companies Mm -hmm. that use these metals to source them responsibly
0: Yes, and in a, you know you also have stuff like federal procurement. I believe there's mm-hmm. already stuff in the in the Inflation Reduction Act about, you know, the federal government trying to use its buying power to push toward cleaner materials mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So this is not a trading one permanent uh, ecological nightmare for another permanent ecological nightmare. This is a bottleneck that we're trying to get through in the next several decades. Mm -hmm. So, you know, obviously we'd like to do it well. As a final question, I'll ask you to get slightly philosophical. Okay. Um, Just intuitively, when someone tells me, hey, there's an unexplored virgin territory on Earth and we've recently discovered it contains valuable, (laughs) (laughs) valuable materials. What could go wrong? What could go wrong? Like, what, what, what is there in the history of humans on Earth, <laughs> that would give us any confidence that we're going to do this. This seems like the sort of paradigmatic thing that humanity does is stomp into these unexplored territories, mm-hmm. which turn out to be inhabited by all sorts of things once you get there and look around and, like, you know, mining them and clear cutting them and destroying them and then coming along years later and saying, oh my gosh, that was. It was terrible what we did. Look at all this damage. Look at how complex the ecosystem turns out to be, blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah. Like We've seen this show before. So how confident are you that this will be different?
1: I can't say I'm super confident. Um, <laughs> we, Like you said, we don't have a good track record on this stuff. What I will say, though, is that there's something that's different about deep sea mining, which is... The regulatory environment is being set up before the industry is happening, which is pretty much different than any kind of mining that's happened in the past. Yeah. So I think there's some hope that if, you know, the countries of the ISA can agree to really strong rules, um, maybe even agree to say, we don't want to use this vacuum dredging destructive Mm -hmm. technology. We got to use, you know, ones that will have a much lighter touch potentially there's a chance that this industry can happen in a much more responsible way but i agree we, we don't have a great track record on that we'll see we'll see what the isa can come up with
0: <laughs> the un all our hopes turn to the un that's uh that's daunting well uh thank you so much for all your research on this and for coming and laying it out so clearly i've been meaning to look into this for ages so thanks for doing the work for me <laughs>
1: this was great thanks david
0: Thank you for listening to the Volts Podcast. It is ad-free, powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf, so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.